You're listening to the Dublin Review podcast in association with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. I'm Angela Flannery. In this episode of the Dublin Review podcast, I'm talking to Emer Ryan about a short story she wrote called The Arborist, which was published in number 63, the summer 2016 issue of the Review. Emer Ryan is from County Tipperary. Her writing has appeared in Granta, The Winter Papers and The Stinging Fly. She's also the co-founder of the literary journal Banshee and its publishing imprint Banshee Press. Emer's debut novel Holding Her Breath was published by Penguin Sandy Cove earlier this year. She's the 2021 writer-in-residence at University College Cork. Emer has been contributing to the Dublin Review since 2014. Emer, thank you for joining us on the Dublin Review podcast. Thanks so much, Angela. Lovely to be here. Now, the story that you're going to read for us today, The Arborist, it was the second short story that you'd contributed to the review. And it's a short, short story. It's only eight pages long, comes in at just over 2,000, 2,200 words. And I'm wondering, is it one of those stories that came quickly because it was short or was it slower in the incubation? Just the opposite. Um, This was a particularly long process, I think, writing the story. Uh, I think I first wrote a draft of it in about 2009, I was in my early 20s and I'd been kind of sending out stories to, to various literary journals that I admired. So I said, I'll, I'll take a punt on the Dublin Review, sent the story off and um, didn't expect to hear back. But I eventually got quite a substantial and, and very thoughtful email from from Brendan. And he said he didn't think the, the story worked in its current form, but there was a lot in it that, that he liked. And he kind of sent me lots of different ideas for for ways I could revise it and kind of improve it. Um, and I was delighted, I suppose, to at that stage in your career, you kind of ex- you expect your submissions to kind of just disappear into the ether and you don't necessarily expect to hear back from the editor. Um, but I suppose I was I was young at the time, so I probably got distracted by another short story and uh, didn't didn't revisit The Arborist at that time. But then a couple of years later, when I published um, Wearing the Pinks in, in the Dublin Review, I think Brendan said to me, you know, whatever happened to that story about the, the guy cutting down the tree? So we kind of dusted it down at that stage and... Um, Made a number of substantial changes to it. Uh, I think in the original draft, the arborist was much older. He was a much more kind of menacing figure. Mm. Um, and it was kind of the mother that he makes the emotional connection with in the story rather than the daughter. And I think one of the one of the kind of big breakthrough changes for me was this idea that the, the arborist had to be more sympathetic. You know, mm. he's still quite an ambiguous and, and shades of grey character, but there has to be something there that, that the reader can kind of emotionally connect with. Um, and so... That was one of the, the first big changes. I found that really, really interesting in it because, you know, he is an older guy, older than the teenage girl in the story. So we imagine that he's maybe in his mid-twenties, possibly 30. Um, and he is, he, I mean, he's lusting after her. He's noticing things about her that he really shouldn't be noticing. He's not having much luck with women his own age. He's going to parties that he's too old for. All of that should add up to a kind of creepy guy, but actually, we end up feeling kind of sorry for him. He is a sympathetic character. Can you talk? How did you go about doing that? Yeah, I suppose I think of him as as quite hapless and just kind of very much trying to make a connection with anyone. And he comes into this very charged situation. Um, he comes into this house that's that's just very much um, suffused in grief and wants so badly to be able to. Uh, make things better but of course because he's on the periphery of the situation he kind of comes off a bit voyeuristic and a bit kind of um, poking his nose in maybe where he shouldn't but I think his intent is is sympathetic in a way that he just wants to be able to help these people but of course the position that he's in he he can't. Mm. 
And even from the outset at the beginning, well, first of all, we very rarely read stories or any kind of fiction from the point of view of a tradesman. And I was looking at this thinking that's really interesting because tradesmen are in the unique position where they're spend their days in strangers' houses and they see the interior lives, the private lives of others and that it is a really unique position. We don't ever find out the guy's name. Was that something that occurred to you at the time or is it just a happy coincidence? I think that's part of what interested me about, as you say, like being a tradesperson and just spending your your time in people's most intimate and private spaces and the things that you can stumble across or eavesdrop on. And I, I got very much into all of the the arborist terms and and processes and the original draft had all these long descriptive passages of of him actually cutting down the tree, um, and I think we realised at a certain point that I was just getting too much into that kind of lovely physical description that I was enjoying, and it actually wasn't doing anything to to move the story along. I think Kevin Barry says something really similar about his his short story to the hills. He said the initial draft had all these gorgeous descriptions of landscapes. But what's really interesting about the story is the relationships. And I think I, I kind of realised that about this one as well, that it's it's the, the dynamic that the reader wants to read about rather than a lovely description of a tree. There isn't a description at all of the tree being cut down. <laughs> yeah. It's there and then it's suddenly not there at all. But I was interested also in the title of the story, The Arborist. It's not a word that you ever, ever hear. But it's what he refers to himself as. And very often when he meets women when he's out, um, they mishear him because the music is too loud. And are you an artist? No. And there's all this confusion then about what an arborist is. You know, <laughs> he's not a lumberjack. He's not a gardener. He's not even a tree surgeon. But he he insists on calling himself an arborist. Why is that? Yeah, I think it kind of speaks to, I suppose, the pride that he that he takes in his work. And I just love the word, you know. Um, and I know that it might not be the the correct term. I think tree surgeon is probably more common, but um, I just love the word and I kind of liked that he insisted upon it. Mm. Um, at the time that you submitted this story and the time it was published, you w- were working on your debut novel, Holding Her Breath. Now, um, this story to me is about death and it's about sex and there is a suicide in the story, hence the tree and why it needs to be chopped down. Um, but you've made some interesting comments in interviews around suicide. There was one interview you gave to Hot Press and it's also in the book Holding Her Breath as well because basically the storyline there is that you have the main character, Beth, whose um, grandfather was a renowned poet and um he died by suicide and now she finds herself in college in Trinity where he was a professor of poetry or where they study him as a poet. Yeah, right? he's kind of revered there. He yeah. is revered there, exactly. And so Beth goes into this idea about suicides and how female suicides tend to be fetishised and how people are interested in was there a note and what was the means, whereas men are remembered, men who die by suicide are more often remembered for what they achieved or what they did during their lives. And that's something that you touch on in this as well. Well, that the, the character, the teenage girl in this, when she talks to the arborist about it, what she's annoyed by was how people muttered under their breath about was there a suicide note and how was it done? But nobody will come out and say it. Yeah, I, and that struck me as well when I was going back over the story, the kind of the thematic similarities with, with holding her breath. And I suppose I'm, I'm really interested in the the aftermath of grief and how so often it is women who kind of have to do that that messy work of kind of putting their lives back together in the aftermath of grief and and the kind of strange byproducts of grief as well. I think um, and 
yeah, I think just being on the periphery, but feeling the the kind of the after effects and the aftershock of of a, a huge event like this um, is kind of a, a grey area that I'm very interested in, in, in writing about and exploring. Mm. And it's actually the teenage girl in this. It's Emma who is, as you say, the women are left picking up pieces afterwards, putting the family together. She's minding her mother afterwards. And we very much see that. And there's a very interesting power dynamic and a power shift in this story where suddenly this girl who I assumed reading it could have even been 14, but is possibly 15 or 16. And she's suddenly the one holding the checkbook. She gets to decide whether or not the arborist gets paid. She seems to be quite aware of his sexual interest in her. And um, was that something you were very conscious of writing? Did you want her to have that amount of self-awareness and to be to have as much agency as she appears to have over other people's lives in the story? Yeah, her agency was was really important to me. I think particularly, as you say, the arborist is kind of looking at her in a way that he shouldn't. So it was kind of important to me that she would have a sense of herself and of her own power. Um, and I think in the, she's very kind of mission oriented in this story. You know, her her main goal is to protect her mother and in a way that that has kind of helped her get through the early stages of grief is this minding her her mom. And I think also she's very much in the anger stage as well of, um, you know, anger, anger at her father for leaving them. And I think when the arborist meets her again at the end of the story, a couple of months have passed and she's kind of moved more into the sadness stage, I think, and and is probably starting to 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 grieve him in a in a fuller way. And it has kind of softened her around the edges a little bit. And has she changed the arborist? I th- think so. Um I think that there's an important withdrawal and kind of letting go at the end. And he kind of realizes it's not his place to help this girl and that he doesn't really have a relationship to her. And I think that's kind of an important step for him to take um, in his own life, you know. It occurs to me reading, I I really like the ending, enjoyed the ending in this story. But, you know, that here's a guy who not only do women, are they not that interested in what he does, but they're disappointed because he's got a physical job, but he's quite weedy. And, you know, he's 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 not muscular, he's not fit, but he has an iPod with a running list on it, but he doesn't, he's never managed to go for a run until the very end. So I loved how that was picked up towards the end. But the one question I had at the end of it all was, did he get paid? Did he get the cheque? <laughs> I don't think he does, no. I think, uh, I think he can't bear to, to take payment for this particular job. Um, so yeah, I think he leaves without without his check. And now here's Emer Ryan reading her story, The Arborist, which was published in number 63, the summer 2016 issue of the Dublin Review. It happened all the time when he was out at night and met someone new. He would say he was an arborist and she would cover an ear against the thump of the music, lean in and yell, an artist? No, an arborist. Oh, she would say, a bit deflated. You mean like a lumberjack? Or you mean like a logger? And eyeing his small frame, is that not very physical work? The woman on the phone, Mrs Shepherd, had been firm. I just want it gone, she'd said. He'd asked her for the particulars. A small beech tree, maybe five metres high. The sharpness in her voice discouraged him from asking why she wanted the tree gone. He guessed it was a dispute with a neighbour. He mentioned his fee and heard her pause. I know, it's not cheap. Look, I should probably tell you, a tree that size, a handyman could probably take care of it. 
or really anyone who's good with tools, who knows what they're doing. Mr. Shepherd, maybe? He could hear her steady breath down the line. No. A friend, a na- a relative? There's no one, she said briskly. Does Tuesday work? There wasn't enough space for the truck in the driveway at the address he'd been given, so he parked on the street, taking up half the narrow suburban road. The door was answered by a lanky, dark-haired girl wearing black skinny jeans, a knotted t-shirt and a would-you-ever-just-fuck-off expression. She was beautiful in the sulky, knowing way of teenagers and much too young for him. You're the tree guy, she asked, and he found himself nodding. Come in so. The house was small and comfortable. The clutter had a look of curation about it. The girl led him through to the kitchen. Glass doors opened onto a decking area and a small, ragged garden. He could see the condemned tree, the only sizable one out there. A woman sat at the round kitchen table reading the newspaper, hands wrapped around a coffee cup. The girl lifted herself up with the heels of her hands to sit on the countertop. Ma'am, this is the guy. Of course. Mrs Shepherd's hair had probably once been dark like her daughter's, but now it was blonde. She was in her late forties, perhaps, with a determined slick of pink lipstick on a thin mouth. Her face was deeply lined, but in a way that suggested good living. Nice to meet you, Mrs Shepherd. We spoke on the phone. Alice, please. She shook his outstretched hand but did not stand up. Emma, would you show him? The girl eased herself from the counter and slid open one of the glass doors. The cool spring air ruffled her hair and he saw her nipples cresting under her t-shirt. That's it there, she gestured vaguely. I figured. He shuffled a few steps into the yard. The doorway was framing them too close together. Do you know when it was planted? Sorry? Mrs. Shepherd inclined her head, but did not look at him. The tree, it's pretty young. I was just wondering if you planted it yourselves, or was it here when you moved in? She blinked. It was here. Oh, okay, just, just curious. He shifted his weight. I'll get the equipment. When the job was done and he had loaded all his gear back in the truck, he took off his gloves and goggles and dusted himself down. Feeling foolish, he rang the doorbell. He hated this part. Emma answered the door. I'm having the strangest feeling of deja vu. She led him back to the kitchen. Mrs Shepherd was staring at the newspaper, motionless. Ma'am, Emma prompted. Hmm? All finished up now, he said. Oh, good. You need to pay the guy, ma'am, Emma said quietly. Right. Mrs Shepherd jerked to motion. Some of her coffee slopped onto the glass table. Um, is a cheque okay? A cheque is fine. Perfect. Emma slouched into the adjoining room. Left in awkward silence with Mrs Shepherd, he gabbled. It was a fine little tree all the same, as though he were sympathising. When Emma returned, he released a breath. She placed a checkbook and a pen in front of her mother, then stood over her as she filled it out. The shape they made, they reminded him of politicians signing a treaty. He was suddenly giddy at the prospect of getting out of this bright kitchen, away from the brittle woman and the smirking girl. Something was out of place, unnatural. The longer he stayed, the more he felt he was standing, not in a house, but in a life-size diorama, suburban semi-D, early 21st century. 
His gaze drifted behind the women, out the glass doors to the yard, to the hole he'd made in the view. You'll get great light in here now, he said, attempting to fill the silence. You won't know yourselves. That's true, said Mrs Shepherd absently. She was bent over the check, intent on her task. Oh, hang on, I meant to ask, do you have a wood-burning stove here? Mrs Shepherd's pen was poised in the air. What? Because I could cut up the trunk for you if you'd like, for firewood. Mrs Shepherd looked at him and then began to shake. The pen dropped to the glass tabletop with a hollow clatter. Instinctively, he made to move towards her, then pulled himself back. Are you all right? He eventually blurted. Emma glared at him, a signal to be quiet. She put her hands gently on her mother's shoulders. Ma'am, it's okay. Head between your knees. Mr Shepherd obeyed, slowly thumping forward. The word felled sprang to mind. The kitchen filled up with her slow, deep breathing. Emma rubbed her back and whispered soothing phrases. It was unbearably intimate. He put his back to the wall and tried to disappear. After a moment, Mrs Shepherd, still trembling, got up and walked slowly into the hallway. Her eyes skimmed over him as she passed. He heard the slow fall of her feet on the stairs and then over his head. Was it something I said? It sounded like a punchline. I mean, is your mother all right? Emma shook her head. She shuffled from foot to foot like a boxer. She's always had panic attacks. They've gotten worse since Dad died. Oh, I'm so sorry, I... She gestured behind her loosely. She found him, out the back. He stiffened. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. She walked into the kitchen that morning and... She trailed off and he thought she might cry, but she scraped her hair back off her face and he saw that she was more angry than sad. The thing is, she keeps seeing him. That was why she wanted the tree gone. Of course. He nodded. He needed to leave. I'm sorry, I'll get out of your hair now. Hang on a second, we've to pay you. No need, it's on the house. Again, he cringed at the words he heard himself speaking. He was inching towards the door. Hey, you weren't to know. She said it fiercely, as if reminding him that this wasn't about him. She dropped into the chair her mother had vacated, like a charmer's snake coiling back into its basket. I just realised I have no idea how to write cheques. He laughed too loudly and was relieved to see her smirk. Do you have a cigarette? she asked. You look like the kind of guy who'd have a cigarette. He patted his shirt pocket for the three neat roll-ups he'd tucked there. He put them flat on his palm. They looked like little shrouded corpses. He offered one to her. Emma stepped outside. He watched the smoke dribble out of her mouth. He noticed a small birthmark on the inside of her arm, so dark and precisely shaped that he initially mistook it for a tattoo. She was frowning at the yard, trying to make sense of the new line of vision. She sat on the edge of the decking and, after a moment's hesitation, he went out and sat beside her. So is this a normal day for you? she asked. He shook his head. I don't make a lot of house calls. No? I mostly work for the council. Pruning branches that grow too close to power lines, spraying trees against diseases, that kind of thing. So mostly you cure the trees, not cut them down. Yeah. You're like the tree whisperer. 
She laughed. Sounds like a reality show or something. It'd be very boring. Probably. What sort of diseases do you deal with? You seriously want to hear this? She blew a smoke ring and waited. Okay, well, at the moment, there's this fungal disease attacking ash trees, causing all sorts of problems. Yeah, I heard something about that on the radio. Dad was freaking out about it. Said, what are we going to do for Hurleys? We'll end up importing them from Bulgaria or God knows where. He smiled wanly. He wished he could say something to acknowledge her mention of her father, but he knew nothing about hurling. We'll fix it, don't worry. Tree whisperer to the rescue. He stole a sideways glance. She was mocking him gently, and he found that he liked it. He took a chance. So your dad likes sports, huh? He thought he'd been giving her an opening, but she looked irritated. Don't all dads? Mine didn't. He did like gardening, though. It's got to be one of those two, right? He went running every morning, she said, as though he hadn't spoken. Even that morning, we found him in his running clothes. I'm not sure if he was on his way or had just come back. He tried to imagine Mr. Shepherd's last morning, found he could not. The canal bank near his apartment was swarming with runners. He thought of them as brave, unafraid of discomfort or of their own thoughts. He'd made a half-hearted decision to become one of them, but got exactly as far as making an inspirational running playlist on his iPod. A silence grew between them, and he knew he had to ask. How are you holding up? She started dragging the rubber-capped toe of her runner in the gravel, making an ever-darker line. You know the two things I kept hearing people ask, like whispering at the funeral? How did he do it, and was there a note? She was staring at the trench she'd made in the gravel. I suppose people just want to understand, but well, I kept hearing those two questions skittering up and down the aisles, at the wake even. None of them had the guts to ask me. What would you have told them if they had? She shrugged. To fuck off, I guess. But I would have respected them more. The sun went behind the clouds and she shivered as the wind picked up, a sudden violent shiver like a sneeze. He's at peace now, that was the other one. They said that one to my face all right. She stubbed out the cigarette and cast it into the bushes without looking. But I never knew what to say back because all I felt was, why the fuck does he get to be at peace? What about us? She stared at him, eyes wide, head shaking slightly. He broke eye contact. I'm sorry if I upset your mother, he said. I hope she'll be okay. Don't worry. Not having to look at the tree will help. Jesus, what a place to do it. She fished a flat silver strip from her pocket, unwrapped the gum and put it in her mouth. You want one? I'm fine. She picked up a small stone and pitched it cleanly through the gash where the tree once stood. His hands were sweating. It would be so much easier if she was crying, he thought. He could slip an arm around her, hunch shoulders. He didn't know how to deal with this splintery anger. He slapped his hands off his knees and started to get up. I should probably head. She nodded and led him back through the kitchen and hallway. The house had become eerily familiar, as though he had lived there as a child and knew every creaky floorboard. At the front door he turned back. She was leaning against the staircase, arms folded. 
She must have sensed that he wanted to touch her. I'm sorry, he said again, and thanks, and take care of yourself, okay? She smiled, a smile so sad and tender it had to be for her father, not him. He saw her again, months later, at a house party that he was too old for. He had thought of her so often, he felt as though he'd conjured her. Would you look who it is, she said, the tree whisperer. I'm going to get that on a business card, he said. They talked briefly and she seemed well, giggly and warm, the way girls become when they're tipsy or into someone. How's your mother doing, he asked, and her smile flickered. But she thanked him. Alice was doing okay, considering. They talked about other things, realised they knew some people in common, and marvelled at the smallness of the world. The party pulled them apart. Later he saw her dancing close with another guy, barely moving, beaming into his face. This guy was the reason for the lightness around her, he realised. Not bad looking, but not what he would have thought her type. But then, what did he think she was after? Someone older? A daddy figure? Him? He had that tree's sawdust on his hands. He left soon after, emerging blinking into a still bright, balmy evening. There was a bus to catch, but he was walking fast. He felt a sudden urge to run and gave in. He ran, feet sapping the pavement in time with his pulse, and felt that he could just keep going. And that was Emma Ryan reading her story, The Arborist, which was published in number 63, the summer 2016 issue of the Dublin Review. You've been listening to the Dublin Review podcast, presented by Angela Flannery and produced in association with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. The Dublin Review is supported by the Arts Council of Ireland and is published quarterly. For more information or to subscribe, go to thedublinreview.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Dublin Review. <laughs>